Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. Uh, my name is Lucas Rickert, and welcome to y'all. We are discussing colonial life of pharmaceuticals, medicines, and modernity in Vietnam. And uh, we're lucky to be joined today by Professor Laurence Monet. She is Professor of History and Director of the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Montreal in Canada. She specializes in the history of medicine in Southeast Asia, uh, global histories of health, and the history of alternative medicines. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and also uh, a co-founder and the president of the history of medicine in Southeast Asia. Asia. It's really exciting to have you here and talk about your book. It's a great book. I, I loved, uh, I loved reading it. I'm glad to be able to be joining you in that very difficult time we're all experiencing. <laughs> yeah, um, as we're all sequestered in our our own little spaces and doing our quarantine thing, it's it's nice to get to talk to you about about your book. I do agree. But let's, you know, let's start off, um, you know, generally and, and with you, you know, tell the, the listeners about yourself, a bit about your backstory. And I guess, you know, how did you, you decide on studying pharmaceuticals in, in Asia and particularly Vietnam? So actually, my, my background is in both colonial studies and the history of Vietnam. Um, I'm coming from a university town in northeast France, uh, where actually basically everybody was working on the history of France or Europe. And um, I wanted to do something else. Uh, it was in the 1980s. And um, I chose to work first for my MA and the political writing of Ho Chi Minh uh, in the 1920s. And it was considered very exotic by my peers, I must say. And, um, and then I decided to make a move and, and do my PhD in Paris um, under the supervision of one of the best specialists of French Indochina at the time. Mm. And um, this man, the difficult man, <laughs> knew nothing about medicine and health, but he was eager to have a grad students uh, who could work on the topic. And I don't know why, but I told him that my parents were both medical doctors. And he looked at me and said, okay, the topic is yours. And obviously, and at the time in the early 90s, uh, there was no, actually no curriculum in medical history in France. So um, I self-trained mostly. Um, I went to François de la Porte and Marie Moulin's seminars and talked, and they were just fantastic. And I, I think I immediately fell in love with the field. And then I moved to Montreal uh, for personal reasons uh, when I was uh, writing my dissertation. And um, in Montreal, when I'm still based, um, I met with the historian and sociologist Joanne Conan, who is at the University of Montreal herself. 
and she became my mentor. And she gave me my first job as a research assistant. And um, she was, and still, she still is, one of the best specialists of the history and sociology of pharmaceuticals. I got a job not long after at the University of Montreal, but I kept on working with Joanne and other wonderful scholars uh, coming from various backgrounds and disciplines uh, who became my friends over the years. I was the only one working in the non-Western world, which was some kind of a challenge, actually. And uh, we had this uh, medicines as social objects interdisciplinary team who, that would meet regularly for more than 15 years. And it became my intellectual home, actually. To stay in, I had to work on pharmaceuticals. And it is in that very specific context that I decided to work on the colonial history of pharmaceuticals in Vietnam without knowing actually if such a project would be feasible. And, uh, and it took me more than a decade and a lot of hard work and frustration, I must say, to finally realize that it was a worthy project. Um, but what I knew then, and when I say then, it's like, nearly 20 years now, is wanted to follow into the footsteps of the anthropologists of pharmaceuticals uh, who had worked on what they called the biography or the life of pharmaceuticals. I'm talking especially about uh, Sag Van East, Susan White, Anita Harden, and uh, their seminal paper, The Anthropology of Pharmaceuticals, A Biographical Approach, which was published in the American Review of Anthropology in 1996. So that's about it. That's my background <laughs> and the background of the book. <laughs> it's um, so it's it's been a, a good long while that you've been working on this project, um, and I I, um, I I was it's obviously um, a really complicated and fascinating book, and and I was I was reading it and I noticed uh, that various sort of interlocking threads were coming together. Uh, so one, the history of colonialism, uh, the history of Southeast Asia, and then of course, uh, like you said, the history of pharmaceuticals. So can you, um, can you explain this sort of intersection for the listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, I think for me, and it's interesting because for, for me as a specialist of Vietnam, it's, it's kind of, you know. Uh, self-explanatory, but it's not. Uh, what I can say is Vietnam to me is the perfect case study to, to look at the history of medicine and health, um, especially in the modern times. And uh, what I've been interesting for, uh, for the beginning from my dissertation actually is the medicalization process in particular. And uh, I think what I, and I mentioned it somewhere in the book, maybe in the uh, acknowledgement section actually, I really wanted to put Vietnam on the map because um, I thought, and I still think, uh, it has so much to tell as a former, what we call in French, colonie totale, or total colony, uh, where the colonial powers wanted desperately to impose biomedicine. But it also, and I think that's something we usually forget when we talk about French Indochina and especially Vietnam, Vietnam is a both East and Southeast Asian country. Um, and that's something very interesting because it's a place with a very strong and for some problematic taste for medicines, as some colonial doctors said, because Vietnam as being part of East and both East and Southeast Asia 
is a place where uh, traditional medicines, and especially what we call Vietnamese medicine, um, is, is a very strong um, medical system, and especially a therapeutic system. Um, and I thought it would be a perfect space to look at to better understand what I call in the book colonial medicines. Um, by colonial medicines, I mean not only medicines that were introduced and distributed by the colonizer, but also medicines that were generated within and redefined by the process and experience of colonization. And since Vietnam is this place where there are so many medical traditions uh, embedded, I thought it was really interesting to look at this, you know, uh, relationship. Plus, I mean, for anybody who has traveled to Vietnam, uh, it's extremely easy to see the huge role pharmaceuticals play in day-to-day -day medical practices. And it was particularly striking when I traveled there for the first time in the early 90s, right after the opening of the, the country. Um, and in fact, uh, then uh, already, I know that one of the questions I had and I wanted to answer was one of the questions uh, a very famous Australian historian of Vietnam and a great specialist of the history of modern Vietnam uh, asked in 1987, so just a few years before uh, my first travel there. So David Ma, it's his name, um, published a, a, an article in 1987. He, he's not a specialist of the history of medicine. Um, he's a specialist of the history of nationalism and Vietnamese nationalism in particular. But in that very stimulating paper he published in 1987, Ma called to unravel the mystery of what he called the popularity of, and he lab labeled them Western's medicine, um, pointing out that these medicines, these drugs, were totally absent or nearly absent from pharmacy shops for, for nearly four decades, from World War II to the opening of the country, what we call in Vietnamese Doi Moi. Um, to put it differently, and without saying it that openly, Ma was suggesting that we need to look back uh, at the colonial time and the colonial rule in order to solve that puzzle. And, and, and still the question like still haunts me. How can you explain that? Vietnamese people are so into pharmaceuticals and they didn't have any for 40 years. Uh, and so and it's at the same time, it's a, it's a weird question and it's a very basic one. But I thought I would um, go back in time to, to try to, um, to uh, answer that uh, important question. And also, I think, uh, to get back to your question, what interested me the most was to write a social history of medicine, uh, to look at the history of medicines as tools and objects of social change. Um, and there, my, my main objective was to examine how and to what extent uh, modern medicines and the colonial situation, to use uh, French sociologist uh, Georges Barandier's expression, were mutually transformed. How were medicines shaped and incorporated into changing local health practices in the context of colonial rule? Um, to me, I would say that there were many medicalizations in Vietnam at the time, and medicines, drugs, became key mediators in colonial encounters and, and even the site up for the expression of a range of expectations, desire, negotiations, practices, 
beyond the medical realm, actually. And I would just, you know, um, mention another important uh, historian, um, Louise White, who is an Africanist. And 25 years ago, uh, in 1995, um, she suggested in a paper, um, a wonderful paper uh, that was published in the American Historical Review, that medicines and other medical technologies, because they elicited seemingly conflicting discourse from colonial and colonized actor, would be taken up as a privileged analytical vantage point on the colonial phenomenon and its legacies. So basically my book is a response to her call. And it's a very articulate and original and enjoyable response, I have to say, for the <laughs> Thank listeners. You. Yeah, I um, and as I was going through it uh, and um, uh, reading uh, just this morning and, and yesterday, a few sort of you know core ideas, uh, little concepts, um, sort of popped out at me. Um, some of them I knew a little bit about, some of them I didn't know anything about, and so I want to just kind of pick your brain about some of these ideas and concepts. So one that I wanted you maybe to t talk a little bit more about was um, this, uh, this idea of therapeutic pluralism. Um, and another one might be modern medical culture. Uh, and a third, I suppose, if I can, is uh, how you use agency throughout the book. So um, can you share, I suppose, some thoughts about um, these ideas and, and how they fit into this this crafty narrative that you that you've you've created yeah sure i i think one of the reasons i'm i'm using these uh concepts and this expression i'm, I'm not talking about agency uh, i will talk about agency uh, later but therapeutic pluralism medical culture i've been hugely influenced by anthropologists but the thing is for for mo some of my anthropologist friends Therapeutic pluralism or medical culture are outdated concepts. And uh, some of them, when they read the book, say, yeah, it's really interesting. So some of them, when they read the book, say, oh, that's a great book, but why are you using therapeutic pluralism? <laughs> do that anymore. But I mean, probably no anthropologist that I do, they're always looking for new concepts, right? And at first I was like, huh, a bit puzzled, I must say. And then, you know, I, I felt I fought back and I say, I don't agree. I think these concepts are, are still very useful. And as you mentioned, in a way, historians don't use, use them. They're not familiar with them. So mm -hmm. yeah. I thought it would be useful for um, an historian readership, actually, because basically this, this book is, is mainly for historians uh, and it tells the history of pharmaceutical that I will use these concepts and try to explain why they are still, you know, um, important and resonating when you look at the history of pharmaceuticals in, uh, in Vietnam. And um, especially, I think, uh, when it comes to therapeutic pluralism, uh, when you look at the um, identity of what I and other call uh, Vietnamese medicine, traditional Vietnamese medicine, and I've worked in Vietnamese medicine a lot, in parallel, um, it's clear to me that Vietnamese medicine is basically a therapeutic system and that it 
it was and it's part of many forms of therapeutic pluralism that still exist in Vietnam. Uh, so I wanted to document that genealogy, that colonial genealogy of therapeutic pluralism. And I, I still think that the expression is worth it. When I use modern, and I know that some historians don't like to use modern, especially <laughs> when it comes to, you know, talking about colonialism, talking about Southeast Asia or Asia. But I'm doing it on purpose because in a way, what I'm trying to do is I'm playing with two very loaded words, um, tradition and modernity. And one of the things I think I tried to do, and I hope I succeeded, is to show that there is no position between tradition and modernity. And you can be a traditional medicine and at the same time uh, being modern, being a modern therapeutic system. And looking back at, you know, what Vietnamese doctors um, uh, wrote about Vietnamese medicine at the time, they insisted on the fact that it was, first of all, a very, very dynamic medical uh, system. And at the same time, it could be like both traditional and modern. And modern doesn't mean Western. Modern means new forms of um, inquiry, new, new sorts of medications, the scientific method, and they use that a lot, and they don't explain what it means, but it's clear in their minds that a vibrant medical tradition is actually modern. So I tried to, to, to play that card. Um, and um, one of the books that has been very influential to me is a book by a business historian, Sherman Cochran, who is a specialist of China. And he published maybe 15 years ago, a book that is called Chinese Medicine Men. And uh, he makes the same kind of argument. It's not his main argument, but the fact that you could, medicines, pharmaceuticals especially, um, are actually products that are at the same time, or could be at the same time, traditional and modern. And he talks especially about what he calls new medicines. Uh, and he plays with old and new. And these new medicines are what in my book I call hybrid specialties. Mm, like, right. you know, pharmaceutical that are both at the same time traditional and modern, Western and Asian, French and Vietnamese. And because they include local substances, for instance, or their packaging is very, or seems to be very Western. And these hybrid specialties, to my mind, are the, you know, the, 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 the symbol, uh, if I can say it that, that way, of a very vibrant uh, modern medical culture. And there's no way um, we need to make this huge distinction between tradition and modernity or, or see tradition to be old, ancient, you know? So I think that's the point I'm trying to make in, in the book. As for agency, um, I mean, <laughs> agency. When you, when you work on, um, on the history of colonialism and medicine in particular, um, everybody knows the work of David Arnold. Um, and um, so for the listeners who don't know David Arnold, he's one of the uh, subaltern studies uh, specialists. Um, 
and he has worked extensively on the history of medicine in British India. And um, when I was in France in the 1990s, nobody knew about David Arnold because nobody read English, right? Uh, but I had the chance to uh, spend some time at the Welcome in London uh, in 1994. And at that time, uh, David Arnold's uh, masterpiece, Colonizing the Body, uh, just came out. And I remember it vividly, like, you know, uh, getting out of the welcome and spending some time in the bookstores on Aston Road. And I find that book. I picked it up. Like, it was just out. I picked it up. I looked at it and said, oh, my God, that's exactly what I want to do, you know. And just reading the cover, right? And um, I, I think I always knew I wanted to write stories about French Indochina from below, from the patients, the sick. And also from the perspective of the colonized people, Mogwali, you know, from the perspective of Vietnamese doctors, Vietnamese nurses, Vietnamese pharmacists. Um, and Arnold's book helped me understand how I could do that. So um, when I decided to embark on this project on the history of pharmaceutical, it was pretty clear to me that one of the things I wanted to look at was drug consumers but also all sorts of intermediaries, traders, sellers, that official histories and colonial sources don't even mention most, most of the time, but who were actively involved in transforming the field of care and not just passive recipients of the colonial efforts to medicalize them. And that's where, you know, agency is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I just have to say that, you know, to go back to your earlier point, mm -hmm. that tension between uh, tradition and and um, and sort of modern is so fascinating, uh, and I, that's one thing that really struck me when I was reading the book mm -hmm. is that ba the balance between tradition and 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 modern. And I also think that it's something that's really applicable to all sorts of different contexts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and still up to these days, actually, you know, we are still struggling with this dichotomy between tradition and modernity. And yeah, I think it's, it's really important to keep on discussing this dichotomy and what it means and, and especially how people use these terms. Um, and that's what I, why I mentioned and I, I use them a lot in the book. You know, how Vietnamese doctors used the terms, not just traditional therapists, but also Western-trained doctors who could see in a vibrant medical tradition, not only a tradition, but a modern medical system. Thinking about broad applicability, um, you know, as I was reading along, um, you know, this is a story about Vietnam and, and Southeast Asia. And um, I, I mean, I personally study the United States and, um, and Canada to a lesser extent. But one thing that's become clear to me is that often, not all the times, but often the story of, of drugs and big pharma, the pharmaceutical industry, is told through the lens of Western culture whether or not that's the UK or Western Europe or, or the United States, Canada. You know, that's slowly shifting. 
Um, but I guess I wanted to ask if you can say a bit more about some of the changes that are taking place, um, either in your circle or not in your circle, about how historians and others might be examining pharmaceutical histories elsewhere. Just sort of if you can give us an insider's perspective. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Um, actually, you're absolutely right. Um, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think um, there was no colonial history of pharmaceuticals when I began my journey, which was, you know, very exciting, but very frightening at the same time. And um, there are now a few excellent references. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about Guillaume Lachanel's book, for instance. Um, it was first published in French um, and is it's now in English, too. Um, John Hopkins University Press two years ago, three years ago. It's called The Lomidine Files, The Untold Story of a Medical Disaster in Colonial Africa. Um, and uh, there are obviously many other historians who actually work now on the history of pharmaceuticals. Um, um, maybe some of the listeners know about Nandini Bhattacharya's work on the therapeutic market in India, uh, Noemi Tuzinian's work on toxicity in Senegal, uh, that kind of stuff, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, but still, what what still struck struck me, uh, and has struck me over the years, is the absence of a history of what I would call pre-antibiotic pharmaceuticals, as if everything began with World War II and penicillin. Um, and if you look again at the history of pharmaceuticals, which is, as you said, very Western-oriented. It's 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 what happens. I mean, it's, it, there's not much about uh, the genealogy of of pharmaceuticals as we know them. Don't get me wrong; there there are fantastic work uh, being done. I mean, uh, let's mention Jeremy Green's books, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's been extremely uh, influential on me and my work. But uh, I think. What was important to me as well was not just Vietnam and the colonial experience um, of pharmaceuticals, but also the fact that it could, you know, be helpful to understand um, what a modern drug is, what a pharmaceutical is. Uh, Because, and here I'm relating to um, John Harlow Warner's um, earlier work or French historian Olivier Faure's work. Um, the idea that between the second half of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century, um, there's some kind of therapeutic revolutions going on, right? And it's a fantastic period to look at because that's the period when pharmaceutical, as we know them now, were in the making, right? So um, I, th- I thought it was it was really important to look at these pre-antibiotic era. I'm not saying that everything is going to change after Second World War. I, I mean, in Vietnam, it will, but um, not in terms of the history of pharmaceuticals, but I thought it was really important to look back, right? And the other thing that had struck me over the years is that, and it's also a Western tendency and a Western-centered way of looking at things, is that we have had a long tendency to denounce what we call the pharmaceuticalization or the over-pharmaceuticalization of the global south. 
you know, denouncing the roles of big pharma in Asia and Africa, that kind of stuff, problems with compliance to treatment, use of, of counterfeit drugs, self-medication, and so on. But we never look at the genealogies of this process, and we never look at the people who were actually involved in the process in Asia and Africa. You know, the people who consumed the pharmaceuticals, the people who actually produced them in these countries. It's like, you know, this process is once again a Western process. Yes, it is not a good one. We should denounce it. But nobody tries to understand who, who are these people who are actually consuming the drugs, over-consuming or not consuming them, or, you know. But And so... That's something that is frustrating me a lot. And I thought that, you know, as a medical historian, I had a saying um, in this. And, um, and uh, I didn't want to talk about pharmaceutical invasion. Uh, I didn't want to see the, 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 the global South as, you know, again, a passive recipient of right. Western pharmaceutical. So the book also about that. I mean, I told you earlier that Vietnam is, to my mind, one of the best case studies, but it is a case study. I mean, we could probably do the same kind of analysis uh, in different countries, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and I hope there will be many of them. Me too. I, I can't wait. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading them down the road. Um, Hopefully, we can sort of maybe push younger scholars to be doing this, or, yeah, or maybe, or, so. or maybe yeah. we do it ourselves. I don't know. Uh, so, you know, the one thing that jumped out at me about what you just said there was that um, there isn't enough work being done on the actual people. Um, okay, so that's not the case in your book, the colonial life of pharmaceuticals. I so what I what I read was deep analysis of some of the actual consumer patients and the historical actors. Um, so what that required was, you know, a bunch of research. Uh, uh, and so, a ton of research, obviously. And, and so your book uh, clearly was deeply, deeply researched and it blended all sorts of sources together. And so what I wanted you to maybe just talk a bit about um, is that process. You know? <laughs> and the troubles. As yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, you know, maybe you got into a bunch of trouble doing this, or maybe you had uh, some fun times doing this and gathering your evidence. Uh, I mean, but can you just say a bit about this? Sure. I, I mean, I had fun times, a lot of them. It was also a lot of frustrations. Um you know, I spent more than a decade researching the book, not writing it, researching for it, right? Oh, yeah. And um, anyone who has worked in the medical history of former colonies know how hard it is and sometimes very painful it is to go beyond, you know, colonial sources and discourses. And Vietnamese specialists like myself also know how hard it has become to get access to archives in Vietnam, you know? Mm. So these are the two, you know, Things I expected uh, before um, beginning the project. But the problem was um, when I first went back to the colonial archives in Aix-en-Provence in France, 
And I was so excited, eager to begin my research. I had a grant for it. You know, everything was perfect. It was south of France. It was summer. I was really excited, like very, very excited. And then, you know, I read, I don't know, thousands of pages of medical reports and administrative, you know, things I knew about because I had already researched them for my dissertation. I was reading and reading again every single day, thousands of pages. And at some point, I was like, look, I have a problem. There's nothing <laughs> about medicines and pharmaceuticals. Nobody talks about them. What am I going to do? Right? So after a while, I was like, okay, so silence are meaningful, which is true. Uh, yeah. We all know that. The problem is, how do you interpret silences, right? Um, so, and sometimes, you know, there were bits and pieces about quinine in particular. Uh, malaria was, is, was and is still a huge problem in Vietnam, but nothing else, right? And I was like, okay, so silence is bold and silence is meaningful, but what do I do with that? And uh, so I must, you know, confess I had moments of despair. <laughs> sure, yeah. And, um, but then I realized, okay, uh, I have to find alternative sources. And I think I use that expression in the book, not alternative in, in the way that they are less meaningful or less important, but sources that um, specialists of colonial Vietnam don't necessarily know. We, we are always obsessed with the colonial archives, but there are so many uh, different um, sources about the history of Vietnam we, we usually overlook, right? So, uh, silences and this idea that I could find alternative sources and again it's in theory it's great you know I'm going to work on the silences I'm going I'm going to find alternative sources but then again that was like okay yeah that's good but what kind of sources right <laughs> so that's why it took me uh, a decade I mean I had to find look for legal commercial documentation for instance I had to go back to uh, scientific literature, medical journals, to see if there were some kind of information about drugs that were distributed in the hospitals or experimented. I tried to find, you know, information about budgets uh, regarding medicines, that kind of thing. So I'm not going to give you the list of alternative oh, no. um, sources, but one, one I found was absolutely wonderful and still is and i'm still using it is um these uh health magazines that were actually published um in interwar vietnam in vietnamese um whoever you know works in the history of vietnam knows that it's a place uh for magazines and journals um and uh, we all know that but, uh, most of the specialists of Vietnam have looked at these magazines and journalists through the lens of the nationalist, na nationalist discourse and how actually these magazines and journals uh, help us understand uh, the history of nationalism, the history of communism, especially in Vietnam. But nobody had ever looked at these uh, journals and magazines through the lens of medicine and health. And so, and it's, again, why it took me so long, because there are so many of them in Vietnamese, and sometimes, you know, it's hard to understand. 
and so I spent like I would say like three to four years uh, with the help of some research assistants, or some grad students, and um, I basically like read them like 10, 15 of them, including like these health magazines that were published, not a lot of them, but maybe half a dozen, uh, especially in the 1930s. And, um, and it was just fascinating because of the ads that are in them, lots of them, lots of ads for pharmacies, pharmacists, but also for pharmaceuticals. And also because one of them is just the most amazing source, there are some um, virtual consultation, if I can say. Uh, um, so patient would send letters uh, to the editor-in-chief, who was a medical doctor, Western trained, and they would talk about their ailments, their pains, and the drugs they were taking or willing to take and looking for his advice. And he would send back information and and that was just fascinating because yeah. it was the best way actually to see that drugs and pharmaceuticals were all over in Vietnam in the 1930s. And that part of the population, obviously the one who could read and send a letter to that magazine. But these people often knew the pharmaceuticals by their name, their train name. So there was this familiarity with drugs and especially Western drugs that I had no idea of, and that colonial sources didn't, you know, mention anywhere. So that was so fascinating because I had, you know, all these silences um, on one part and these fascinating accounts coming from below, from these patients, these Vietnamese patients, or these pharmacists advertising the product in the press. And it was just... You know, I, I had to find a way to put all these sources together and try to um, interpret them all together. And I think that's what I, I tried to, to do in the book. And that's also why it took so long, actually. <laughs> well, I mean, it was worth the wait. Ross, um, <laughs> <laughs> my, my next question has to do, I guess, kind of relatedly um, to, you know, what some of your favorite bits or anecdotes are from the book. I mean, you talking about this one particular source mm -hmm. is pretty cool. I mean, to get yeah. that back and back and forth. But did you have uh, some other sort of things that you, you really need to share with listeners, some of your favorite parts? <laughs> yeah, so you, you clearly this magazine and his editor-in-chief, his name is the Nguyen Van Nguyen. Um, I, I really enjoyed working with them in a way, you know, working with them. He's been, he's been dead for quite some time. He, he actually died uh, in the early 1940s. Um, but it was this great, you know, um, clinician um, talking about uh, essential medicines for the people. He uses the word essential medicine in the 1930s. I mean, it's just amazing, right? And uh, the anecdote, <laughs> I think the people who actually read the book don't see that that well. But one of the things I did, um, you know, whenever I found some bits and pieces on drugs, pharmaceuticals, I would put them in a database, right? Um, one biography uh, for each drug, medicine, substance I could find, because I had no idea how many 
pharmaceuticals were involved actually you know because it's it's the thing to say okay so vietnamese people love western pharmaceuticals but what kind of drugs are we talking about how many right and in the end the database i think includes maybe a thousand more a bit more than a thousand um you know uh, biographies uh some of them are very sketchy some of them are pretty interesting but uh, in parallel to that pharmaceutical database i decided to um actually built uh, databases on pharmacists and on medical doctors, Vietnamese pharmacists and medical doctors, because I thought it would be interesting to point out their uh, specific role uh, in the this early pharmaceuticalization. And as you probably know, in Vietnam, uh, the vast majority of the population, uh, 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 the name is Nguyen, right? And so when you look for information about doctors and pharmacists, you kind of think like everybody has the same name. And in the end, you don't know how many of them are there, right? And so I, I tried to identify all these doctors and pharmacists. And before beginning that database, I was pretty sure there were only like 10 or 15 Vietnamese pharmacists working in Vietnam before 1940. And maybe a hundred medical doctors, right? In the end, in my database for medical doctors, and most of them, yes, have Nguyen as their surname, uh, I have, I think, 500 of them. And I have like 200 pharmacists. So this project also, you know, helped me reveal something I was really interested in beyond these sort of pharmaceuticals is the role of you know, healthcare professionals, Vietnamese healthcare professional uh, before Second World War and, and the, the, the process of, you know, uh, giving access to, uh, to care, to medical care to the Vietnamese population. Fascinating. It's, you know, it's, I guess, like some of the, the beginning parts of the research. And then at the end, we, we have sort of different perspectives for sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I guess for getting close, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, and I thank you, but I, I, I got to ask, you know. What's next? What, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ten years working on this book. So yeah. what's. Um, no, I'm not going to spend another 10 years on a project. Although um, so I, I'm working these days on uh, the sort of measles. Um, I've had this project with a colleague of mine at uh, University of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Uh, this project deals with the anti-vaccination and measles in Canada since the 1960s. And yes, I also work in Canada <laughs> from time to time. Um, and uh, so um, measles, I've published a book, uh, so it didn't take me 10 years to do so. On the last uh, measles outbreak in Quebec in uh, 1989, uh, to uh, better understand the relationship between vaccination and measles, and um, and understand in particular what anti-vaccination really means, and try to historicize what we call these days uh, vaccine hesitancy. Um, so yeah. this project on uh, anti-vaccination and measles in Canada. Um, and we actually uh, are with my colleague, uh, Heather McDougall at Waterloo. We are currently writing a book 
uh, on uh, vaccination policies and measles uh, in Canada that should be published, I hope, uh, within the next couple of uh, years. Um, and uh, in parallel, I have this new project, which is also about measles. Um, it might take a decade. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, want to, I want to write the first global history of measles. Um, so that's something I can't do by myself. Uh, so I've actually asked um, an half a dozen uh, colleagues, historians, friends, um, including Kevita Savarakrishman, Robert Pekam in Hong Kong. And we are actually picking um, case studies all over the world and uh, trying to, um, through a few, you know, um, topics related to measles, including xenotyping, vaccination, of course, um, that kind of thing. We're trying to, yeah, build the first global history of measles. Um, so for that project, uh, I have a huge grant for four or five years, I think. And I'm covering not Vietnam this time, uh, but Cambodia and Laos. Um, I had worked on Cambodia and Laos for my dissertation, and I was eager to go back there, <laughs> first of all, and travel there. I hope I'm, I'm, I'll be able to do that soon again. Yeah. Um, but I thought it would be really interesting to look back at these two small countries we don't talk about much, um, especially Cambodia, because uh, Cambodia has officially eliminated measles five years ago. So uh, it's pretty impressive uh, for yeah. this post-genocide um, country. And uh, not long ago, there were no doctors, no vaccinators in, in Cambodia, right? So the idea that the, the country has eliminated um, measles, it just fascinates me. So, so I'm doing field work, uh, mostly oral history, uh, anthropological field work, because there are no archives in Cambodia and Laos I can get access to dealing with measles. But it's, it's very exciting. Uh, it's, it's a new project, but I'm very excited about it. And again, uh, hopefully I'll be able to travel again at some point and uh, go on with, the, with this project. Well, those projects sound amazing, uh, and I look forward to, to reading that work in the future. But for now, um, I wanted to recommend that um, listeners pick up uh, and read a copy of The Colonial Life of Pharmaceuticals, Medicines and Modernity in Vietnam, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Uh, and Laurence, thanks so much for taking the time to, to talk to me about this book, um, which is uh, itself innovative um, and, and enjoyable. So thanks so much. Thank you.